We pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for bringing us here to your house today. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to study your word. We simply ask the same thing we do every week. Please use your word and our meditation on it to bless us and to strengthen us. Please send your Holy Spirit to each one of us to encourage us in our faith and to make us so excited to celebrate the blessings that you've brought to us at Christmas. Bless our meditation on your word this morning. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Welcome back to our Advent sermon series. Uh, so this is week three in the series. We talked about this earlier. Our series is called Hope for Generations. And the idea as we're building up towards Christmas is we're looking not only back to Christmas, but way back, looking through the Old Testament. We've divided it up into three sections, three generations, if you will, and we're going to see what we can learn from each one. Last week, show of hands, were you here or did you watch it online? You just raise your hand and say, well, I watched it online and no one will know if you did or not. Um, so thank you. I'm assuming some of you were not, so that's why I'm going to quickly recap. Last week we talked about the generation of Abraham. So when, when we meet Abraham in the Bible, he's 75 years old. He and his wife Sarah have never been able to have any children. And yet God tells him, not only are you going to have a son, but your descendants are going to form a great nation. And through that great nation, the Savior of the whole world is going to arrive. And this seemed impossible, right? But as the book of Hebrews puts it, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And he set off for the promised land of Canaan. And so we talked last week about how hard it is to believe in things that you can't see. And we talked last week about how difficult it is to stick out from your culture and be different. And we talked about the challenge of placing our hopes in eternity and not in this life right here like our whole world is doing. And then we kind of left off the narrative. So today, we pick up the story a thousand years later, which is a cool thing. As a New Testament believer, you can read back and you can just like skip to the next chapter, right? Abraham couldn't do that. We can. So we skip ahead a thousand years, and wow, God has accomplished a ton in this time span. So looking back, sure enough, God did give Abraham and Sarah a son, and God did turn that son into a great nation, and God did lead that great nation into the promised land. And then he provided leaders. He gave them prophets, and he gave them judges, and finally he gave them kings. And so that's where we're at today. We're kind of looking at the period of the kings. Does anybody remember the name of the first king of Israel? Very first king. It was Saul. So Saul, remember Saul was like, uh, he must have been six foot five or something like that. He's a head and shoulders above everybody else. He looks really kingly. He looks really good. But Saul ends up not being a great king. He ends up being actually quite evil and corrupt. So God sends his prophet to anoint a humble shepherd boy named David to take his place. Now David is a man of faith. The Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. And so David doesn't do what probably anybody else would have done, which is immediately go assassinate Saul and take over the kingdom. David doesn't do that. He waits for God's justice to be carried out in God's own time, and eventually it happens. King Saul is killed in battle, his household crumbles apart, and David takes the throne. 
So, one of David's first acts of ki as king, I just wanted to share this with you guys because I don't know how many people know about this. One of David's first acts as king was an amazing act of daring. One of the very first things he did is he went with his army and they besieged a Jebusite city that was built on top of a mountain. And it was a city that was so heavily fortified and defended that it was believed no one could ever conquer it. But David's army did conquer this impenetrable city. And they did it through a secret mission that involved sending soldiers to scale a water shaft underneath the city that let out at the bottom of the city well. So this is like, this would have been in a James Bond movie or a Jason Bourne flick or like Navy SEALs. You've got this elite crack team of David's army and they're crawling up the water shaft into this Jebusite city and they come out in the well and they let everybody else in and the Israelites conquer the city. Well then David fortified that city. Apparently he blocked off the water tunnel or guarded it now and built bigger walls and more protection and he declared it Israel's new capital. And the name of the city, of course, was Jerusalem. So now they've got their capital city of Jerusalem. And from that capital, the next thing David does early in his reign is he goes out and fights a battle and wins a great victory against the Philistines. And the next thing David does is he builds a beautiful palace for himself in Jerusalem. And the next thing David does is he brings in the Ark of the Covenant that symbol of God's presence that they've been carrying with them since the time of Moses. And he brings that into the city. But David's just getting started. And that's where our text picks up today. That's the context, and so here we are. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. It's time, David is thinking, to finally build God the kind of temple that he deserves. And that's the logical next move, right? For a good and godly king, unlike Saul, a good and godly king who's trying to lead his people to be close to the Lord. Of course, David wants to finally build God a temple. And it seems like God's prophet Nathan is very much in agreement. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Nathan's just as much on board with this building project uh, as David is. We're going to build God a temple. But then the surprise comes. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt until this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling, and wherever I've moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So, just to be clear, it doesn't seem like God is mad at David. It doesn't seem like it's a bad idea for David to build God a temple. It's not a bad plan. God just has a bigger and a better plan. And he lays it out in the next verses. Basically what God is going to say in the next verses is this. David, I'm glad you want to build me a house. But actually, I'm going to build you a house. And not a physical building. I'm going to build you a ruling house, a dynasty, a kingdom. And it's going to be one that lasts forever. 
we'll look at those verses in just a minute. But for here, let's press pause. Let's take a time out, step back. And I want to draw your attention to something interesting about this whole situation. It's clear that God knows something that David doesn't know. And as we, of course, can look back through history and read the whole Old Testament, we also know something that David doesn't know. And here is what it is. Even though David has literally just taken the throne, this is already the high point of the kingdom of Israel. Things are just going to go downhill from here. The very next chapter, I'm looking around in 2 Samuel to see what happens, and it's all lined up. In the very next chapter, David wins a bunch of military victories, which is great, but all of those successes start to make him proud. And they start to lead even a man after God's own heart to start to think that he can do whatever he wants. And it's not real long after this chapter that David begins his infamous affair with Bathsheba, which is going to end up leading him to murder her husband and steal her for his own wife. Thankfully, Nathan, this same prophet, came to David and brought him to repentance. But then, a few years after this, David's promiscuity and his lack of parenting, basically, starts to catch up with him. As all his different kids grow up to be adults, and they all start to jostle for power and position and to see who's going to be next for the throne. And sure enough, one of David's sons named Absalom leads a coup right there in Jerusalem, and he actually drives his dad out of the city, attempting to kill him and take over and become the next king of Israel by force. Eventually, David's soldiers defeats Absalom's soldiers, and David does come back into the city, and he retakes his throne, but now it's as a tired, worn-out, frustrated old man. When David dies, his son Solomon is going to take over. And outwardly, Solomon's reign is going to be full of peace and security and wealth and grandeur like the kingdom has never seen. And yet inwardly, under the surface... Under Solomon, the kingdom is already going to be spiritually rotting because Solomon's hundreds of wives led him to worship hundreds of foreign gods. And by the end of Solomon's reign, that idolatry has been passed on to his people and the nation is just sinking into the depths of idol worship. And then two generations after David, as soon as Solomon dies, there's an immediate civil war. The entire nation of Israel splits north versus south and they fight more and more against each other and they fall deeper and deeper into idol worship until finally God has no choice but to allow an enemy nation to come in, conquer Israel, tear down that beautiful temple that Solomon had built and carry God's people off into exile. And when they come back from exile, things are never going to be the same. Never again will God's people have a king that is this good and godly. Never again will God's people have the strongest economy and the most successful fighting force in the entire world. As far as the physical nation of Israel goes, things are never going to be better than they are at this moment. As David's planning to build this temple for God, from here on out, it's all downhill. Gradually, but all downhill. And poor David has no idea what's coming. Has that ever happened to you? So, has it ever happened where your life seems to finally be aligning just the way that you want it? Things are falling into place, and so you're pumped up, you're excited, you've got big plans, and they're not bad plans. 
Like David's plan to build a temple was not a bad plan. Maybe you're excited for your next stage of life. You've got huge plans, plans that you think are going to allow you to do the best possible job with the blessings and opportunities that God has given to you. You're ready. The pieces are in place. You're there. It feels like you've made it. And then before you even realize what's happening, something swoops in and pulls out the rug from under your feet. Maybe it's a health problem. Maybe it's a relationship problem. Maybe it's an unexpected change to your circumstances that you could not have possibly foreseen. But whatever the case may be, here you were with all your excitement for this next big stage of life and all your great plans, and now you just feel so foolish because clearly it wasn't going to happen after all. And it wasn't going to work out because sometimes it seems like nothing works out. What's the issue? Well, the issue is that we live in a sin-broken world, and life in a sin-broken world is inevitably disappointing. So many of our best-laid plans don't succeed. And on a rare occasion that they do succeed, it just doesn't end up quite the way we pictured it. And then on the super rare times when our plans actually do succeed, and it is the way that we pictured it, it actually really is good, it doesn't last. Something else always comes along and steals our joy. The next problem, the next frustration. And it gets to the point where we almost can't get excited about anything. We almost can't the best times of life because we're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Do you ever feel like this? Like things are finally going well and you're just like flinching, waiting, because you know something is going to come along and mess up your joy. Life in a sin-broken world is inevitably disappointing. So what are we supposed to do about it? That really is the big question of this sermon. Right? The question is not, as we hear David and Nathan talking, the question is not, how should we respond to success? We could talk about that a different time. The deeper question here is, how do we respond to the creeping knowledge that none of our success is going to last? Right? How do we respond to the inevitability of disappointment in life? Thinking about it, it seems like there's basically two ways to respond. Let's call the first one fatalistic acceptance. And it sounds like this. Why even try? What's the use? There is no point. It's not worth it. I'm done. We get so sick of making plans and then they don't work. We get so tired of becoming excited and having high hopes only to have those hopes dashed. It gets to the point where we're almost ready to just despair of making plans anymore. We're almost ready to despair of even being happy anymore. And that's not a great mental space to be in. So, well, what about the other option? with the inevitable disappointment of life, maybe the other option we could call naive optimism, which sounds like this. I know disappointment happens to a lot of people, but it's not going to happen to me. I'm built different. I'm special. I work harder. I don't give up. I refuse to be denied. That sounds awesome until you get denied. But you know, life in a sin-broken world is just inevitably disappointing. Our plans are going to change. Our excitement is not going to last. 
So what are we supposed to do? It kind of feels like a no-win situation. Either give up on your dreams or pursue your dreams and watch them get shattered. But our sermon text presents to us a third option. And the third option is to trust that God has greater plans and dreams for your life than you could even realize. That's the lesson David learns here. Right? Because he, he's on top of the world. He's just taken over as king. Things are going great. He's got these big plans. He's going to, to build this temple for God. And that's not a bad plan. God just has a bigger and better plan for David's life than he could even realize. And so now God starts to unfold that plan for David through his prophet. He says, the Lord declares to you, you know, you're not going to build a house for me. The Lord is going to establish a house for you, David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name. Who is God talking about? Well, we did our little historical review. We're thinking through what happened. It seems pretty obvious this is talking about Solomon. Solomon is David's offspring. He's his own flesh and blood. He's going to be the very next one to take the throne. And Solomon is going to be the one to build the temple, the house for God that David longed to build, that gold-plated wonder, the likes of which the world had never seen nor would ever see again. Solomon was going to be the great temple builder. So it seems like this is the promise that God is making. Your son is going to do it. Your son is going to build it. But God's not done. In the next couple of verses, God starts to describe this offspring in some very un-Solomon-like ways. So what are the next thing God says about this offspring who's coming? I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. And yet through him, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. It's pretty difficult to see Solomon in any of these verses, considering his rampant idolatry is what led the nation completely off a cliff, leading to an immediate civil war. As soon as he died, the temple was torn down, and it never really got back to how it was again. This can't be talking about Solomon. But as we look back through time we realize these verses are pointing to a different descendant of David. They're pointing to the one who comes at the end of Matthew's genealogy. He was born in Bethlehem, the town of David. He lived a life free from corruption and idol worship and sin of any kind. Uh, there were multiple occasions where God said publicly, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And yet, despite his perfect life, what happened to Jesus? He was punished with floggings administered by human hands. In fact, he was crucified like a common criminal. Not because he himself had done wrong, but because in God's sight he was being it's saddled with all the accumulated wrongs of the entire human race. He died, he rose, he ascended into heaven, and ever since then, what has Jesus been doing? He's been building his kingdom. It's not a political kingdom, it's not a physical kingdom, it's a kingdom of faith. 
growing in people's hearts throughout the world. It's a kingdom that transcends all other kingdoms and will last forever in heaven. So the big fulfillment of these verses is not Solomon. The long-term fulfillment of these verses is Jesus. It's a different plan than the one that David had. And David's plan wasn't bad. It's just that David's plan was focused on short-term things. Build an earthly temple for God to come dwell with his people in this world. God has a bigger plan focused on the long-term things, a spiritual kingdom, an eternal throne, and bringing us to be with him in heaven. So if it's been said once, it's been said a thousand times, that tiny little baby lying in the manger was not the kind of king that our world expected. But he was exactly the kind of king that we needed. And ultimately, David recognized that. Even though his kingdom didn't work out the way he maybe envisioned, even though he didn't get to build the temple like he wanted to, even though his sins and shortcomings contributed to some of the problems, even though God's plan was different from his own, where is David right now? He's sitting with God in heaven. And as David sits with God in heaven, I think it's probably fair to say that David has no complaints. He can now look back at his life from an eternal perspective and he can recognize that even though God didn't give him what he was hoping for, God gave him something way better. And that's a perspective that we need to be reminded of all the time because life in a sin-broken world is inevitably disappointing. So many of our plans don't succeed. And when they do succeed, it doesn't work out quite how we envisioned it. And if it actually succeeds and it is how we envisioned, it doesn't last. Something always comes along to steal our joy, the next problem, the next issue, and we get to the point where we can hardly even enjoy anything anymore. We can hardly even get excited about anything anymore because we are flinching, 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 waiting for that other shoe to drop. But what a difference it makes when we realize the other shoe is controlled by an all-powerful and all-loving God. A God who loves us so much, he sent his own son to die for us. When our plans change, it's not by accident. When our plans change, it's because God is working. There's all kinds of things he could be working on. Maybe he's strengthening us, teaching us, and refining us, and molding us, and shaping us. Maybe he's lining up some blessing that we're going to be able to see and appreciate 20 years down the line. Maybe he's lining up blessings that we're not going to be able to appreciate until we're sitting with David in heaven, looking back at our life and saying, okay, I can see what God was doing there. We don't always know what God is doing, but one thing is sure. When our plans change, it's because God is working. And in the end, all of our little plans, whether they succeed or fail, they're all incorporated into God's big plan to bring us to eternity, a plan which never fails. So I want to close this morning by asking you to picture something. Uh, and to help you picture it, I'll show you a literal picture of it. Uh, picture two kids building a fort in their living room on a rainy day. Could you possibly envision this scenario in your mind? So kids are building a fort, and like they've got it all planned out. 
Uh, they've got a good floor plan, which is going to be pillows from the bed. They've got a good plan for the walls. It's going to be the cushions from the couch. They've got the roof all set up. It's going to be the comforter from mom and dad's bed. And so the fort looks good on paper. And when they build the fort, it looks good in person. And so here are these kids building a fort on a rainy, thunderstormy day outside, and they're working hard on their construction project. But then disaster strikes. And the disaster is that when they actually get in the fort and start playing in it, it just doesn't have the structural integrity that they thought it would. And so the wall keeps tipping over, and the one part of the roof keeps coming off and falling in. And first there's frustration, and then there's disappointment, and then there's anger, and maybe even there's tears. There's conflict between these kids and their frustrated building project. But as frustrated as these kids are with their pillow fort in the living room, do you know what else these kids are? They're dry. Because this little fort is not the thing that's protecting them from the storm and the rain that's going on outside. What's protecting them is the much larger roof overhead, the roof of their father's house, which is sheltering them the entire time as they play in their little fort. And this is how it is with us. We work so hard on our little plans. And sometimes they come to fruition, and oftentimes they don't. And when they don't, there's anger and there's frustration and maybe there's even tears. But frustrated as we are with our little building projects, in the big picture, we're safe. We're protected. We're going to be okay because we're in our Father's house. And he's sheltering us and covering us the entire time. And everything that happens to us down here falls into the context of God's big plan up here. God's eternal plan to bring us from this frustrating, sin-broken world into a perfect world in heaven. Amen. And now the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus your Savior. Amen.